The Prime Minister is announcing today the next step in our campaign to reduce plastic waste. Do you use fewer plastic bags than you did two years ago? The official figures say the plastic bag tax has been a huge success, with UK shoppers using 90% fewer than they used to. In fact, action against plastics is apparently all the rage in Westminster, with National Treasurer David Attenborough getting most of the credit. Plastic straws are a scourge. They're just one of the examples of the way in which we pollute the oceans and damage marine wildlife. Surely we have a responsibility to care for our blue planet. And there was also talk of a latte levy, a 25p charge on disposable coffee cups before the government abandoned the plan. Welcome to the coffee cup graveyard, one of the only recycling plants in the UK that can dispose of the plastic and paper packaging that we drink from. These are small examples, but they raise a big question. Can we tax our way to a cleaner planet? Or do we still need government to bring in the big guns and regulate before it's too late? We're exploring all that and more on the Weekly Economics podcast today. I'm Ayesha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. So joining me to talk about why economics is both the cause of and solution to our pending planetary disaster, once again, I'm joined by friend of the pod, Dave Powell, head of environment here at the New Economics Foundation and our very own Weekly Econ pod, Attenborough. What? Yeah, well, I know. Old. <laughs> That's what's going around the office, mate. That's what everyone's calling you. I'll take it. Yeah, yeah big day. Your favourite sea creature? Uh, penguins count. I don't know. They do go they... in the sea. So do mermaids. But yeah. penguins. Okay. Yeah. All yeah, right. Penguins. Cool. Okay. I mean, penguins just the answer, but favourite anything, right? Penguin. Yeah, 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 yeah. Biscuit, sea creature. Across the board, it works. Politician, whatever. Yeah, great. All right, uh, and I'm also joined by another returning friend of the pod, Alice Bell, who is director of the environmental charity 1010. Welcome back, Alice. Hello. Same question. I can't remember its name. Is it a pilot fish? It's one of those, re- the best things are always the ones that live really, really far at the really bottom of the sea and oh, look yeah. like really scary. Oh, yeah. And it's got, yeah, Dave is now doing an impersonation of one of these. <laughs> They've basically got like these weird light things that go off in front of them. Um, oh, yeah. Okay, one of them is yeah. in Nemo, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. All coming together. Okay, great. So it's an all-star environmental lineup today. But before we get stuck into our big question, it's time for the long overdue return of our usual headline segment. So this is where we bring you a vaguely economic story that you might have missed, either because it didn't get enough coverage or because you were drunk in a park enjoying the sun. So, Alice, what's your story of the week? It is the Committee on Climate Change, um, which mm-hmm. is the government's advisors on climate change. Uh, they had a report out this week. Um, celebrating 10 years of the Climate Change Act. Uh, So the Climate Change Act came out a bit under 10 years ago. It's something that the UK is rightly quite proud of. When it came out, we were kind of taking a bit of a lead um, in terms of taking action on climate change. Um, We can expect quite a lot of very weird eco-nationalism to happen in the autumn when people start celebrating this um, Mm. as green, great green, green, Great Green Britain, Britain Week, is it, or is it Green Great Britain Week? One of the two, anyway. Sounds People great. will be talking a lot about this as the year goes on. But in preparation for this, the Committee on Climate Change had a kind of report on, have you been doing in the last 10 years? Mm. And the answer is, we're doing all right in terms of some things. In fact, looking back to 1990... Our carbon emissions have fallen by over 40%. Mm-hmm. And yet in that period, our economy hasn't fallen, it hasn't dropped. So people sometimes think that like, if you take action on climate change, it's going to cost the economy. They are quite clear that is not the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the areas that we, if you look at how we've been um, saving carbon, our power generation sector, so like how we make energy, has done a lot of that work. So there's still loads more to do on that. We're still like still burning a lot of gas. And although coal is dying, it isn't gone yet. 
we should invest loads more in renewable energy but that is taking that has contributed to a lot of our carbon emissions and we're just not doing anything enough on a load of other areas particularly agriculture and energy savings are okay making energy but we're not very good at in terms of being using it or wasting it Mm. Um, so they had lots of stuff on that and what's and there's lots of interesting things about that particularly that the committee on climate change have previously been quite calm and kind of a bit restrained about dave's nodding they maybe not pushed their uh they the the government as much as they could do this one's been a bit some people have thought they've maybe been a bit scared about pushing the government in case the government turns around and goes all right we'll close you yeah. uh, but this year they're like nah cracking the knuckles you know they're ready to Ooh, there's uh, a real knuckle crack there <laughs> don't you um, this is getting real. They, they're really out and they're saying, you know, you've done all right, but we've got loads more to do. So whether government listens, I don't know. But it was a new story that I think is really key for the environmental sector and probably should have got a bit more coverage than it did. Well, I doubt any of our listeners would have missed any of that. No. I'm sure they know it all. And they're already planning their great Green Britain parties. But yeah. thank you. Dave, how are you going to follow that? Uh, well, speaking of things that aren't going as well as they could do, I thought we would mention Heathrow. Mm. Um Zonkin Great Airport, uh, off to the left of London somewhere. Mm. Uh, it's about to get Zonkinger because MPs voted by really quite a disappointingly large margin, mm. uh, 415 to 119 or something like that, to approve the third runway at Heathrow, which is not good news if you live under where that runway is going to be. Mm-hmm. It's not good news if you live near that runway because there's going to be an awful lot of air pollution. It's not good news if you are a climate because uh, that's going to make a big dent in the UK's carbon emissions. And one of the things the Committee on Climate Change have been consistently saying is like, well, you know, technically I suppose you could probably expand that airport, but you need a much better plan for mm. how you're going to do it than you've got. Um, so it was, it's was. it been a massive thing. I mean, it's not done yet. It's now got to go through planning. It's now got to go through all those obstacles. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think it's, it's just pretty disappointing. It's pretty disappointing to have the government about to talk such a great game on how good it's doing on climate change and then yet mm-hmm. to be giving the green light to something that could have such a big dent on the UK's carbon emissions, all in pursuit of economic arguments that NEF has shown don't really stand up for even why the thing needs to be built in the first place. So disappointing all round, really. Okay, that's a great lead in to the rest of the episode. Thank you, Dave and Alice. We'll be back with some big fat juicy headlines next week. But for now, the big question, can we tax our way to a cleaner planet? Economics might not seem like a fashionable business, but economic ideas do go in and out of style. One of the sexiest ideas of the past decade has been nudge theory, which is the idea that a little prod from the government can encourage us to change our behaviour and be better citizens, maybe without even realising it. Look at what this does. This is a simple piece of behavioural economics. The best way to get someone to cut their electricity bill is to show them their own spending and then show what an energy-conscious neighbour is spending. That sort of behavioural economics can transform people's behaviour in a way that all the bullying and all the information and all the uh, badgering from a government cannot possibly achieve. Meanwhile, good old-fashioned regulation seems to have fallen out of favour with recent governments, and leaving the market to just do its thing isn't all that popular with campaigners. So, when it comes to the environment, do all of these approaches have their place? What works best? And are there better or worse ways to make sure our economy doesn't wreck the planet? The impact of global warming will be somewhere between severe and catastrophic. First up, I mentioned the so-called war on plastics at the top of the programme. 
How is that going? Well, uh, is there a war on plastic at all? It kind of depends. I don't even think there is a war on plastic, really. So a um, few months ago, six months ago now, I can't remember. Yeah, around about Christmas time. Uh, Theresa May came out and said, by the year 2042, which is a long way in the future, mm. we're going to ban uh, some unnecessary plastic stuff. So stuff that we don't need, we're going to ban 25 years in the future from now and uh, got loads of tried to get loads of credit for that. And there are some things that the government has done. So they have brought in, well, they're consulting on whether to just flat out ban some things like plastic straws and those stirry things that you totally unnecessarily get in drinks and those sort of things, mm. um, which has, uh, has been quite fun, actually, because the European Union has turned around and said, ah, well, well, we're going to ban plastic straws and stirry things that you get in drinks and forks mm-hmm. and other things as well. And, and deliberately forks. kind of going, hey, we're greener than you. Don't, don't, be, don't be making this about we can Brexit and be green because we're, we're green. And not forks, not all forks, just mm. plastic forks. Okay. Worry so, not, you'll still have forks. Okay, good. Yeah. Phew, um, I love a fork. So, that, you know, and there's been a lot of focus on sort of drip, drip, drip thing on these most, I guess, egregious, totally silly single-use plastic things but i mean there's just you know recycling is still rubbish we're still recycling in england is about 40 percent, something like that and it's been like that for ages it's a bit better in scotland and wales but it's it's flatlining we're not recycling more we're still chucking far too much plastic into landfill or burning it and if you just look at the economy in general we use far too much plastic i mean it is everywhere still and having a bit of a dig at the things that seem the easiest to get away with politically is not really doing anything about that deeper stuff and certainly not a long time in the future okay interesting so what we're going to do now is work through a few different approaches to dealing with some of these issues and it'd be great if we could in each of the examples take a look at the strengths and potential limitations as we work through them does that sound okay we'll have a go Okay, give it your best shot. So the first one, let's start with the classic, leave it all up to the market. So obviously that approach is mostly what got us into this mess. But are there ever times when the market does the right thing? There are market forces which are people who don't want to take action on climate change are having to reckon with now. I mean, that's particularly one of the arguments that's often levelled at um, kind of Trump and when people are saying oh but Trump is not taking action on climate change, what will we do? Well, actually, he's, there's lots of reasons why Trump uh, as an actor or, or inactor on climate change is more isolated than previous presidents might be. And one of them is to do with, I suppose, market forces. Maybe, I don't know. I'd, what do you think, Dave? Well, I don't, it depends. Like, I'm all up for markets delivering me the fanciest smartphone. You know, I don't want particularly government to make phones for me. Quite happy for that to happen. But where it's like really complicated stuff, which environmental stuff is complicated, like, mm. you know, should we use plastic or should we increase our carbon emissions? Should we use palm oil from this or oil from somewhere else? All of that sort of thing. It's all really, really complicated. In order for this idea that markets can do it all to work, then people that buy stuff in markets have to know exactly what's going on and have to have mm-hmm. the power to do something about it and have to not be advertised something is green when it's not and have to, you know, genuinely have the choice and the availability. But we don't, you know, we don't know. People don't know which phones are greener. And even if they bothered to find out, you know, they wouldn't necessarily be able to switch to something else, for example. So I, I just think the idea, like for some things, fine. When it's nice and simple, I suppose markets could probably have a role to play. But we're talking about the functioning of the entire economy. And don't forget, you know, markets are entirely human creations. They're not some of this this magical thing that just exists. They're they're Mm. creatures of rules. We set the rules for markets. There are no such thing as a free market in anything. And if there was, people wouldn't like it. So, you know, it's totally down to us as citizens and to governments 
to set the rules and to say what we want to happen. So markets can do it, but only if we set the rules that enable them to tax the right things, regulate the right things and get it to go in that way. So, yeah, I'd agree with that, Dave. I'd also say that the market isn't working fast enough when it comes to climate change. I mean, that's one of the biggest challenges we have is that we have the means to tackle climate change. It's just really difficult to see how we're going to do it fast enough. Mm. And when people do go back to saying, oh, well, you know, Trump can do what he wants, but the price of solar panels is falling. It's not happening fast enough. There will be policies that people can put in place that will help speed it up. And in fact, that phone example you gave is really good in terms of things not just happening just from the market, because, you know, the basis of everything, you know, as Mariana Mazzucato would say, everything smart on your smartphone was paid by the US taxpayer. Um, there's, you know, investment that governments can make that will shape how the market will develop, you know, will, will shape the market. Um, and I think we, one of the things we really need to think about in terms of environmental action is how things that politicians can do can speed up what the market's doing. Okay, so let's move on to something a little bit more complicated then. So voluntary incentives or agreements where, where big companies sign up to do something good for the planet. Alice, is that how 1010 got started? Is that right? Something to do with that? And sort of. I mean, we called 1010 because we were asking people to make a pledge for cutting your carbon emissions by 10% by 2010. Mm-hmm. And that was, there was the idea that if people wanted to individually take action on climate change, that was fine, but it was only going to take them so far. And really, people would take more action and would keep at that. You, make, you start making a commitment, you say, I'll do plastic-free Lent, but you'll only keep going if you feel part of collective action and mm-hmm. you're part of a community. So it was to give people a community to take action together. So loads of people collectively could say, I'm doing that this year. In this mm-hmm. year, I'm going to cut my carbon by 10%. So we had individuals, we also had organisations and some businesses. Okay. Um, so there were some businesses in there that made that commitment. And um, what we found with the institutions like I mean, there were some governmental organisations as well as uh, companies. Um, they often generally took, cut their carbon by a lot more than 10%, more, mm. partly because particularly 10 years ago when people started looking for carbon to cut, there was loads they could start cut, cutting. Mm-hmm. And there are now organ- other... We don't really do that stuff so much anymore, partly because there are whole other organisations that specialise in helping businesses cut their carbon. But that's maybe different from a kind of voluntary like agreement on palm oil or something like that. Yeah, it's a sort like of different that. thing that you, the sort of agreements we're seeing on plastics. Uh, I think that's slightly different from the kind of carbon cut stuff that we've seen. And I mean, they're just like generally voluntary agreements when they're done. This is a bunch of either an individual company or more often a bunch of them will get together and they'll say, don't regulate us. Well, 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 well. put that put that stick down. Mm. We'll play nice. We'll, we'll do our own thing. So you want us to stop making microbeads, uh, we, which are you know, things you get in shower mm-hmm. products and stuff like that. Don't worry. We'll we'll get rid of them ourselves. Fine. Trust us. We'll, mm-hmm. we'll do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and pretty much always doesn't do Certainly, as as much as the original regulation was aiming at, and sometimes fails totally. There was stuff in the news recently about uh, companies just failing, totally failing to cut sugar from the products that they sell, despite promising they would by a certain amount, and they didn't come anywhere close to it. Um, some And what I think is really interesting, actually, going back to plastics again, so some companies are really going for this now, actually. You look at someone like Iceland, who got a huge amount of credit for, I think, like five years, isn't it? Something like that. They said, in five years, no plastic packaging on any of our stuff. We're doing it. Mm-hmm. And there's this voluntary agreement doing the round, this thing called the UK Plastics Pact, which mm-hmm. has an aspiration that by the year 2025, all packaging will be recyclable or something like that. And Iceland were like, well, we're not signing that. Because that's rubbish and weak, and we're mm. doing far more than that, you know. Mm. But in general, you know, it is almost always a thing that industry does to 
stop it being regulated, which then generally means at the end of the day, someone has to come along and regulate them because they just don't do it properly. Yeah, I guess there's a, but there is a difference between like the voluntary agreements, which are nearly always come about from people trying to avoid being regulated to individual organisations yeah. going, I'm really going to do this. And there are networks, particularly in, cl- in carbon emissions cutting, you see networks of people coming together to do stuff. But that is different from voluntary agreements, I think. But even then, it's hard to rely on lots of individual organisations going, oh, I'll, you know, do this, I'll do that, or hoping that everyone will take Iceland's lead. Hmm. Okay, so let's move on to nudge theory. We talked about it a little bit before. They've got an eyebrow raise there, very excited. Um, so as I said, this was especially fashionable with Cameron's government, which set up a nudge unit in the cabinet <laughs> office. Um, sounds, now. <laughs> yeah, sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, so what do you think about the idea that deep down we all just want to do the right thing when it comes to pollution and we just need a gentle prod in the right direction from some very savvy behavioural scientists? I think one of the problems that we all have as consumers in a world that is very destructive on the environment is that a lot of our world is structured around us being destructive, uh, partly because that serves a lot of other people. Like it makes it cheaper to run things or more profitable or more sparkly in some way. And so a lot of our world is structured around us buying stuff that we shouldn't. It's probably going to be unhealthy for us. A lot of the nudge unit stuff comes out of public health stuff as well and like how we could, you know, be encouraged not to eat so much chocolate or we might do other behaviour that would be good for our health. We could apply that to climate change too. Like so just where you place plastic wrapped stuff in the supermarket or something that could be done and I don't have a problem with that um, about us designing our environment to make it easier for us to do things I think we should design our streets to make it easier to walk and cycle that would be good for our mm-hmm. health and it would be good for the environment that doesn't mean it's going to solve the whole problem though and um, it does kind of allow us as members of society to kind of be like take a bit of a backseat in this and go it's all about um, governments kind of deciding things around us rather than what I'm going to do and I, again a bit like some of the other things we talked about I don't think it will make things happen fast enough. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a fundamental, it's, it's a pretty sort of optimistic story about human nature that we all know we're doing bad stuff, but we're all just sort of overwhelmed by the man and by the system. And if we just change, change the rules. So the plastic bag charge, not a tax. You said it was a, mm. a tax at the start. It's not a tax. It's not a tax. Not a tax. It's I'm a charge. So it's basically an amount of money what you pay. Um, mm. Just like the congestion charge. You pay £10 or whatever it is, £20, mm. um, or you, you know, or, or don't do it. Um, that was the 5p that's been chucked on plastic bags wasn't the point. I mean, 5p, you know, okay, some people even 5p is a stretch, right? But in general, the 5p wasn't the point. It was the fact that you were changing it from a thing that you did without thinking that society Mm. said... You have bags. That's what you go shopping and you have bags. How many bags you want? You want three bags? Have four bags. Have another bag. How many bags you want? You know, you do your online shopping, it turns up in 50 bags. Every every great individually. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And it changed it from being that to something where you had to go, all right, I want in. I want to opt in. I want to do a thing mm-hmm. that, uh, that the default is I'm not doing it. And I actually think that stuff is really powerful. And, you know, I do agree. I mean, it's, it's definitely just a small part of what needs to happen. But I think environmental advocates have not really done enough in past years sort of thinking about that stuff, like how people's just day-to-day experience of the environment mm-hmm. and how that kind of how that kind of works. I mean, I was really, it's about 90% reduction or something in the mm. amount of plastic bags used. And I, I was really surprised by that. But yeah, I, so I, yeah, there is a role for it. But just like all of this stuff, you know, you can't leave it all to the markets. You can't leave it all to businesses doing the right thing. And you can't leave it all to people just choosing whether or not to pay 5p on a plastic bag. Like we need all of these things, but also more. Okay. Okay, we're getting somewhere, I think. I think I'm learning some things. So moving further up the scale, let's talk tax. If it is a tax, we'll see. 
what I'm about to say. <laughs> carbon taxes, <laughs> carbon taxes, plastic bag taxes, that sort of thing. So the plastic, plastic bag, bag charges. charge yeah. has been a success. So you, we just talked about this a little bit, but do you think we do need similar charges then that are going to change the way that people engage with things and other other environmental charges that you can think of that would have more support and would lead to similar consequences? Well, we could think about having a carbon tax. So we think about how much the, the true cost of carbon is, you know, the social cost, the environmental cost, the Ooh. health cost. And we, can, we, can have a, we could have that, Ooh. and that would change the price of all sorts of different things. Yeah. David's getting excited no, about no, that. No, so but one of the things that I think is like an honest step, so there's been research from like LSE Grantham Institute has done quite a lot of work on this. They say it wouldn't necessarily hurt the economy. There's different views around how it would hurt different people maybe around it. My favourite example on this is if you look at flights. So... The thing about flying is that you could put the price of flights up loads and you'd still have the same number of people flying because rich people still really like to fly. So if you had a carbon tax, the price of flying... Wait, 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 wait. So if... if, if, Is that true? Because there are so many flights that are cheap surely if the flights were higher then the people who were buying the cheap flights wouldn't be able to yeah buy they them. wouldn't but the rich people would just keep flying and they'd fly loads so one of the things you notice is the more money people have the more they'll fly um by, and, like, by like a massive yeah. you know it's massively so this is one of the other things about heathrow that the runway's being built for rich people that's who you know that's who will use it um 70 of the flights are taken by 10 percent of the population is the mm. neft did that research didn't they or worked on it Sure. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Did a bit of it. That. Did some okay. of the recent stuff for Heathrow, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. like, there, um, there's a group called Fellow Travellers have done a lot on this, and one of the things they ask for is to have a what they call um, a frequent flyer levy. Mm-hmm. Um, so this would mean that instead of just going straight for having carbon taxes and putting the flights up, the price of a flight for everyone, which would just mean that. Those of us who take maybe one flight a year that's cheap would get priced out. Or those of us who've got, you know, family members somewhere that we do really want to see. Mm-hmm. I'm flying this summer. I feel guilty about it. But also it's because I'm going to the wedding of one of my best friends. And that's really important to me. Mm. It would be terrible if that was, like, un- unaffordable. So they ask for a frequent fire levy, which would be like, so everyone can take their one return flight a year. And that's mm. priced as it currently is, or maybe slightly differently, depending on, you know, other things to do with legislation around flying. But then people who want to take, like, 10 flights a year, which some people do people who commute by plane between say london and madrid every month because they've just split their life around that every week. that will mm. that will every week some people do like that that's just how they're able to live their lives like that now without necessarily having to be super rich um they would be taxed a lot for that what um, about people who travel loads for business for well work? same um, thing I mean, Dave might have more detail on that than me, but it looks as if some of the some of the research the NEF did was it not? I mean, people have done research on it, and it doesn't look like it's going to impact badly on on business because actually businesses aren't flying that much necessarily, and mm. you can still have a few business flights, and that's all really you need. So, the, the, so I made a funny face when Alice started talking about face uh, always looks like that about uh, <laughs> capturing the true cost of environmental damage or something yeah. in in taxes. The problem with capturing the true cost of uh, environmental damage is it's like, how do you cost the possibility of climate change wiping out significant chunks of life on Earth? Or of how do you cost total ecological collapse? So the point being that there is a theory, some economic theory goes, that's all you need to do. You work out what the damage that environment, uh, environmental damage is. You work out what the cost of it, and then you put a tax on it. They are problem solved. People pay that tax, then we can just fix the damage. But I don't, it doesn't work like that. I mean, not least because for some, in some cases, the numbers would be astronomically high. 
you know, but also just because the political economy of this, this is the thing that always gets me is like, it isn't necessarily any easier to introduce a zonking great climate tax than it is to introduce a regulation to stop the thing that you're trying to stop happening. Where I do think taxes are really important is where you've got an unfairness going on and you're trying to recognise that. And I do think, you know, the fact that most most flights are taken by rich people, the fact that, you know, companies are actually subsidised still to get fossil fuels out of the ground, you know, reversing a subsidy is also a form of taxation as well. So it's, it's definitely got a role. And if there's something that's still going to carry on, for better or for worse, let's tax it and use the money to do things like insulate homes and stuff like that. But again, you know, people who say all we need is a carbon tax, which some economists will do, uh, I just think it's missing. It's not any easier to do. It's not any easier to get the Daily Mail on side with that. And it would be to come along with a stick with a nail in the end of it and just poke people till they stop doing things. So you're right to say I shouldn't have said the true cost of it. I agree with that. But I think I maybe disagree with you about, I wouldn't throw it out entirely. I think ascribing a cost to it and it being part of our tool box that we use to tackle Mm. environmental problems, along with nudging and the odd bit of like leadership from Iceland or something and even a voluntary pact to, you know, and regulation. I think think we should talk about carbon taxing more. And actually that's where taxing is, the smart way to do environmental taxing is not to try to work out what the amount of money you're going to raise is but to work out how you change behavior right so uh instead of going well we're going to put a tax on carbon of 200 pounds because that's the price of what climate change will cost don't do that say how much do you need to charge people so that they do something else or so the people you actually want to affect do something else that's a really good way of thinking about taxing um but there is always just that question of whether that's actually any easier than just saying to people you can't do that thing don't know it's a political question Okay, love a political question here on the weekly Egon Pod. All right, so um, let's get a bit more involved and talk regulation. You've mentioned it a little bit already, Dave. So laws, rules, whether in the UK or internationally. Um, Lots of campaigners say that the only way to really deal with the global impact of climate change is to have big multilateral agreements and uh, regulations. And again, we've touched on this, but others say that this is just red tape and it's going to hold back the economy. So how much environmental regulation should we have? (laughs) I don't know. Intense. No, <laughs> loads. Loads, loads. Loads more than we have. Exactly. And we shouldn't say it's like regulation can create innovation. We shouldn't say it's necessarily a, like it's going to stop things. It can create things. That can be great. Hmm. Uh, I, don't, I disagree with campaigners who say that that's all we need, though. There is a tendency, particularly when it comes to environmental stuff and people going, oh, we just need the government to act. We do need the government to act a lot more, but that doesn't mean that that's okay for you and your individual behaviour either. You know, like mm-hmm. we need, there's a mix of different things that we need to do. Some of that's individual, some of that's social, cultural, businesses. You know, there's a range of different things we need in our toolbox. But yeah, regulation should be a lot more of it, I think. The government has pulled off in the, in the UK and increasingly in the EU, and now Donald Trump is doing it as well, has pulled off this trick of framing regulation, which is basically the rules that markets work by, which is the thing we all decide, framing it as de facto bad for business. Yeah. So uh, a regulation is bad for business. You want a regulation, you prove why it's worth the hassle you're going to cause to business, you know, burdens and, and all of this sort of stuff. Um, and, you know, this, it's our democ- it's what democracy is for, is making the mm. rules that decides how society works. So how much regulation should we have you know enough to protect people and nature and avoid climate change and have a functioning democracy and ensure safety and workers rights and that we're all happy and you know that people are exploited and that people pay their taxes and then all the other stuff as well and that's not a number there's not mm. some amount mm. of regulation it's not like calories it's not like you can go that's too much and that's not enough and this ludicrous idea that we've got a one in three out so you now in the uk yeah. if you want to bring in a new regulation you've got to scrap three other ones or or three's worth of other ones in terms of the cost to business and it's 
bonkers. And I do, actually, it's changing a bit, fortunately, um, thanks to some of the events. So thanks to Brexit and thanks to David Cameron not being around and thanks to some of the horrific events at Grenfell and, you know, the frame and, and people knowing what deregulation is and they're really kind of immediate way and talked about that a few weeks ago it is changing a bit in the uk but you know just the idea is daft your question is daft (laughs) i reject a premise (laughs) okay final question then um so what about making big interventions in the market and having more public ownership or community ownership of things like energy companies does that sound good that sounds great let's do lots of that alice is smiling (laughs) success all right so one of the things we really need for one of the reasons why this is important is that it will help people have a role in uh, the big shifts that we need to have sometimes people, it's really good that you ask me this because people don't normally think about it mm-hmm. um but the idea that communities might own their own power station might seem a little bit ridiculous but there are people up and down the country that have made their own power stations they've turned their school into a power station they've Ooh. turned their um, church yes it's great <laughs> churches think um, of the children of the children it doesn't necessarily have to be a big intervention in the market though um, in fact, I think probably we just want a percentage of our energy in the UK to be owned by uh, local communities. Um, I think we should have a lot more than we currently do. There were some stats out last week that the amount of uh, renewable energy that's being added to the UK every year by community groups has dropped by a third in the last year. It's keep, kept dropping. And the impact of that is that is because of the impact of the cuts, big solar cuts that came in about three years ago, cuts to what was called the feed-in tariff, which is, this is not necessarily a big intervention in the market. This is just a way in which the government can encourage people to Uh, build their own renewable energy and help people turn their local areas into power stations, transform what is otherwise kind of dormant space, like the the roof of your school can just be covered in solar panels and it turns a school into not just a school, but a whole power station. Mm -hmm. And the kids can... um, have a little computer in the classroom that tells them how much their electricity they're generating. And one of the things that makes this so powerful is not just that the school can generate its own electricity that's clean energy, that's helping people, you know, that's not hurting the environment. And that saves them money because they're not paying a company for this this electricity. They're doing it themselves. And then if they've got any excess stuff, they can sell that back to the grid, which gives them money that they can spend on all sorts of other cool things. Mm-hmm. But the kids can look at it and they go, all right, today we, we made lots of electricity, but tomorrow we might not. And overall mm-hmm. in the year, we've only made this percentage of our electricity has come from the, the solar panels and then they ask questions about where the rest of it comes from and yeah. that helps people to get more engaged in the energy system and it, so by having a percentage of our, our energy coming from community projects that can allow the public to have a much more engaged relationship with our energy system and ask the sorts of questions that we need to be asking and have the kind of speed of transition that we need to have. It doesn't need to be a big intervention, it can be something like this feed-in tariff that we still kind of have and that fact that was one of the recommendations of the Committee on Climate Change is that we need to still have feed-in tariffs and I'd say that we need to start putting the back up because those cuts three years ago were, were really bad um, the government could just do it by having this thing called a feed-in tariff which is basically any excess electricity that you've got that you're not using you sell back to the grid and then you get a bit of extra money for it it was invented mm. by jimmy carter um, jimmy carter is famous for putting solar panels on the roof of the of the white house bush um reagan took them off mm. w bush had some in the garden obama puts them back on anyway this is not what wow. is interesting about wow. Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter enabled <laughs> Americans across the country to have their own solar panels because he invented the feed-in tariff. In Europe, we started doing this in the last 10, 15, 20 years. They've had loads of them in Germany, a couple of other places, and it just, this smaller subsidy, which is nothing compared to the subsidies that the government gives oil and gas, small subsidy could help generate electricity that's owned by communities all over the country. And that that is a very simple and actually quite small and low-cost thing that the government could do that could probably have quite a lot of transformational change. 
Wow. So it was a bit unclear there. Do you like feed-in tariffs? I do like feed-in tariffs, yeah. (laughs) Okay, amazing. So just before we go, I've got one more question for both of you. So is there a bad way to save the environment? Uh, should we just do whatever works or is there a version of the future where we've got environmental damage under control but we haven't got a fairer society? Oh, crikey. Uh, is there a bad way to say... Yeah, because environmental problems are also social problems, really. Like, any environmental problem that is a symptom of how we run our economy, if we fix it in a way that just deals with the mess, basically, or just, mm. you know, but doesn't deal with the fact that the economy is massively unfair or that 70% of the flights are taken by 10% of the people. And it's just going to spill out somewhere else. And all you'll end up doing is, I don't know, just doing things that don't have public support or that haven't actually dealt with the underlying things, or you've made poor people pay all the costs, or you've done something like you've gone to uh, poor areas of the country where you've got steel plants or high-energy producing things, and you've just gone, stop stop that, shut down, get out of a job. And you do mm-hmm. like what Maggie Thatcher did to the coal mines in the 80s, and you just decimate entire areas and that doesn't work it's not fair and historically you know globally inside countries around the world it's rich people rich countries that have caused the mess and it's poorer countries poorer people that are on the sharp end of the problems and so the the only way that you really go about saving the environment whatever that really even means in the long run is a way that takes responsibility for the fact that rich people rich countries cause the damage that shows leadership doesn't expect developing countries or poor people to pay for the costs and yeah actually actively helps to correct the fact that things are unfair put carbon taxes on richer people not poorer people use the money to pay for insulating the homes of poorer people you know that mm. kind of thing is the best way to do it and that's the way to make it endurable and to make it actually part of something that's just how a country is run rather than these things that come and go with the wind mm. yeah nice a pun. <laughs> with the wind yeah uh. but it, i agree with dave if we're going to tackle climate change and if we're going to tackle biodiversity issues and plastics and all the other environmental problems that we have um, we will have to change how particularly people who live in the uk live their lives quite a lot there is a lot of transformation that's going to happen, have to happen very, very quickly. Then we need to think about who that disrupts and who that disturbs and who that leaves behind. We are doing, taking action on climate change. We're making some progress. It's nowhere near fast enough, but we are doing some. But this week where we heard that 26% of single parent households are living in fuel poverty, we also learned that the Queen is making millions, millions every year out of offshore wind. That's great for the Queen, but why aren't mm. these other families benefiting from it? And I can see... I can already see it happening. I can definitely see it in terms of versions of our future of taking action on climate change. Uh, one where, you know, a small number of Elon Musks and Queens and Prince Philips and Prince Charles make a lot of money out of this transition and the rest mm. of us are left, not only left not making money out of it, but also dealing with the impact of climate change. Because one of the sad things is, is we're not going to solve it. Climate change is not something that we can solve. We can just mitigate our losses and protect ourselves from the worst of it. Mm. And so I think what my, the thing that keeps me awake at night, probably more than us not tackling climate change, because I think we are, you know, gradually doing bits of that, is that we tackle climate change a fair bit, you know, the bit that the market will let us do and some voluntary stuff and people who want to make money out of some things they can make money out of. But they they still don't, tackle it to save everybody. Mm-hmm, and meanwhile, mm-hmm. bi- billions of people are still hurt by this. Mm-hmm. And they're not making anything out of that either. And they're completely left behind. And so we end up with a world where we have quite a bit of climate change, not as much as there could be. Well done, a few people who managed to avoid complete catastrophe. Yeah. But we still have billions and billions of people suffering. And I think that's the thing that we really need to keep an eye on as we go forward. It's like, yes, tackle climate change. And as Dave says, uh, do it fairly. Mm. 
wasn't really a good question to end with because it was all so wonderful and positive. <laughs> I was feeling all good and now it's a bit more somber. Can you both give me a little pick-me-up, perhaps a plug for some exciting things you're working on? Yeah, oh, good. Yes, I'm glad you asked me this because I was going to bring this up anyway. So uh, I definitely haven't forgotten and we definitely haven't gone back and recorded this bit again <laughs> to put in afterwards. Uh, we, uh, the New Economics Foundation, are starting a new campaign on air pollution, uh, which has a lot of... We haven't really talked about it, actually, very much in this episode. Big old issue. Uh, some things are happening, not enough things are happening. We want to work with a local group out there that's trying to do some stuff on air pollution but kind of doesn't know where to start or wants to be bigger or wants some help from the things that New Economics Foundation can do, like campaign strategy or economics analysis. Um, and we've got a thing on our website. Just go to our website, search air pollution, uh, neweconomics.org, and you'll find a form if just to get involved and let us know if you're interested in partnering with us. Uh, deadline is 9th of July, which is not far. So get your skates on, but it's only a teeny little form, so it wouldn't take you long, and we'd love to hear from you. Amazing. Alice? Well, if you are frustrated, like obviously you should be, that the government has banned onshore wind in the UK, uh, then you can go to 1010's website, 1010uk.org, and you can sign our petition. Uh, but more fun than that, because I think I should tell you something fun, is this new thing we're doing with London's lost rivers. So London has all these like subterranean uh, waterways, which romantically are lost rivers, but are actually sewers. Um, <laughs> and they're really hot. So I wanted to call this project Hot Shit, but I was overruled. It's, That's uh, a great name. It, well, I would sign anything that was called it's, that. It's uh, London's Lost Rivers, uh, collecting okay. heat from London's Lost Rivers, because you can use heat pumps, which are these amazing... So your listeners who live in rural areas may be really familiar with heat pumps, but people who live in the city are like, what is this weird shit she's talking about? But they're this really good uh, form of renewable energy. You can renewable. It's a way of getting renewable heat. You put these, these heat pumps in places and they can help create heat and you can heat your home and they're brilliant. They're basically magic. Google them if you want to know how they work. Anyway, put heat pumps in these sewers and we worked out we can heat loads of stuff that is sort of above all these lost rivers and there's lots of cool things in London that you could heat. So we could... Uh, and we really need to... Um, change how we heat stuff in the UK because most of our heat comes from gas so if we want to get off fossil fuels it's one of the things we need to do is um, find some ways of not using gas so this is a really cool project it'll be really good for the planet also it's just fun that we can like just <laughs> dunk these things in some sewers and then we can use them to heat our swimming pools and our banks and our schools and our homes and everything ah, nice thank you very much both uh, Dave Powell and Alice Bell for joining me I've had fun and I've learned a lot it's been like Blue Peter do I get a badge you get a brain badge yeah nice all comes together but that's it for this week lovely listener if you have enjoyed this episode please tell someone about it if you want to be an official friend of the pod just like Dave and Alice then leave us a five star review in your podcast app I don't know what you get for, I'll check with the producer like a tote bag maybe <laughs> well, you get nothing you literally get nothing <laughs> you have to go on a course yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. anyway as always you can drop us a line with your comments and questions we're at weekly econ pod on twitter the weekly economics podcast is produced by james shield and brought to you by the new economics foundation see you next week